Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning into this podcast from the Connecticut Certification Board. The CCB is a non-for-profit workforce development organization whose mission is to protect the public by enhancing recovery-oriented workforce capacity. On behalf of the Board of Directors and the staff of the CCB, I'd like to welcome you to this podcast entitled Scope of Practice. If you were a football fan in the 80s and 90s, undoubtedly you heard the name and know a small part of the story of Tony Mandarich, All-American offensive tackle at Michigan State, considered to be the best offensive line prospect in the history of the game, the number two overall pick in the 1989 NFL draft behind UCLA's Troy Aikman and ahead of Oklahoma State running back Barry Sanders, Alabama linebacker and defensive end Derek Thomas, and Florida State defensive back Deion Sanders. If those names are familiar, one of the reasons would be that they're all enshrined at the whole Pro Football Hall of Fame in Canton. Tony was selected by the Green Bay Packers, where unfortunately he couldn't live up to the hype and was out of football in four years. For many, that's where awareness of Tony ended, with the unflattering moniker of the NFL's biggest bust, derailed by opioid pain pills, alcohol, and a self-described immaturity. However, that's not where the story ends. As a matter of fact, that's really where it just begins. Tony discovered recovery was able to get back into the NFL from 96 through 98, and now has a career as a professional photographer, highly sought after by art directors, advertising agencies, and digital marketing professionals. It's my pleasure to welcome Tony to our podcast. Thanks for talking to us today, Tony. Jeffrey, it's a pleasure to be on. I'd like to start this interview off in a different way than I envisioned. Um, in preparation to talk to you, part of my research was rewatching some interviews that you had previously done, including the uh, 2008 conversation with Armin Kittayan, as, as well as one from last year with Rob Hanley from Recovery Today. When listening to those, there were several words that you used that really stuck with me, and I'd like to have you talk about these words as they relate to your recovery and to your life today. The first one would be gratitude. Look, I mean, with gratitude, I'll have to also add, like, the word, maybe as a sub-word of, of, you know, laughter or laughing. Um, But if you're not, if you're in recovery, if you're in sobriety, if you're working steps, if you're in life, if you're participating in life, okay, outside, whether it's 12-step rooms or whether it's, church, or it doesn't matter what it is, if you're outside participating in the stream of life, and you don't have gratitude, and if you're not laughing, you're not going to, like, I know, why would I say sober? Because I wasn't grateful, and I wasn't laughing when I was in my last six, seven years of, of you know, hardcore addiction and, and, and alcoholism. Mm-hmm. So, I think that, you know... You know, people talk about dry drunks and, and, and stuff like this. People that, are, that don't actually put the chemical in their body, but they're miserable all the time. And, you know, whether that's a, a symptom of not working steps in a, in a program, a 12-step program, or whether that's just a fact of it could be a chemical imbalance in their brain. I'm not a doctor, but I, I, I know enough to know that, hey, if you abuse your body chemically, there might be some imbalances later on down the road. Mm. And so, you know, I'm not a doctor to say, you know, this person might be on, you know, uh, a certain antidepressant or anti-anxiety or whatever the case may be. And, and I don't, you know, it's like that's a part I don't even want to go to. But what I'm saying is, is I, if I'm not grateful every day when I wake up, 
And it's the first thing, like for me, just it just comes naturally. It's been 25 years now I've been doing this, mm-hmm. and it's come that it comes naturally now as part of instead of reaching over to the nightstand for the bottle of prescription pills like it was in those last years of, of drugging and drinking, I as soon as I open my eyes, I say the serenity prayer. And and I don't and and that's the first time I say it. The second time I say it is after you know I go to the, I go to the bathroom and then I come back. I come back. I, you know I'll read like you know a short passage out of a book. Doesn't matter what kind of. I mean whether it's a twelve step related book or whether it's a self you know development book or whatever. Kind of get a, a message for the day, and then I'll hit my knees and I will you know ask the God of my understanding mm-hmm. to, you know, help me through this day and help me to do the things that he would want me to do rather than the things that my ego would want me to do. And, and so with, I think that it's, I mean, yes, you can, you can be without chemicals and you can keep that, especially if you're grateful and if you're laughing every day. And I've had laughter every day since day 11 of being dry. So I was still in the treatment center. Mm-hmm. And at day 11, I really I started laughing, and my stomach hurt from laughing that day. And I hadn't had that feeling in 10 years. And I thought to myself, and I knew nothing about a maintenance program after leaving a treatment center, trust me. Mm-hmm. And if I would have known about a maintenance program, I, know, I maybe never would have went to a treatment <laughs> But if I'm not, even you know, even in the last 25 years, of course, life, life still happens. There are tragedies. There are divorces. There are deaths. There are relationship difficulties. There are, you know, yourself, personal, your own personal difficulties on how you look at yourself, how you feel about yourself, how you self-sabotage, even sober. Mm-hmm. And, but there's always been that some point in a day where I could laugh at myself and be like, you know, did you get sober to change or did you get sober to live a different way? You know, or like live a different way or just get sober and continue your bad habits and your bad decision making and all of this stuff. So, I mean, gratitude and laughter for me, you know, kind of go hand in hand and, um, I, for me personally, they're essential to the maintenance of sobriety. Um, because if I don't have those, it's just a matter of time before I pick up that bottle again. It's really interesting that you mentioned laughter because a sense of humor is something that you have to learn again. It doesn't, mm-hmm. it's not something that's just right there because it hasn't been part of your survival mechanism in many cases to that point. But when somebody gets into recovery, the ability to laugh. And, and not take things uh, in, in certain ways is really a skill that has to be learned. Exactly. exactly. And, and it, yeah, it goes from fight, and, fight or flight to gratitude and laughter. <laughs> right? Yeah, that's so, a great way to put it. <laughs> you know, and it's like I, I've been, you know, there would be times I'd be, you know, white knuckling, going through, you know, DTs and, and withdrawals and stuff and, and I, you know, I don't ever want to forget those days. I don't, like, I'll, I'll acknowledge them and I'll remember them. I will stay in them more than a second or two. But I'll be like, man, I had no, I, I mean, I have problems today. We all do. 
we all have problems. Right. And nobody's like immune to problems. So it's, it's how you handle those problems today. How I handle the adversity today is so different than how I handled adversity when I was out there drinking. You would think that you, a normal person would say, well, maybe I should just slow down and drink a little bit until I get my stuff together here. Instead, you do the opposite. Mm-hmm. You drink even more because it's like, well, it's just really like eliminated out of the equation by numbing ourselves. Exactly. You mentioned something too interesting that I thought was you said you can, you can find recovery just to change or you can find recovery for yourself and live a better life. One of the things that as a professional that we want to train new clinicians that come into the field is stop talking about what somebody is trying to get away from and start talking about what they're trying to get to. And let them decide so that it makes recovery look appealing to that person who's struggling. It is appealing, but it's difficult. But to the person that's really struggling, you want to say, this is why, these are the reasons to go here to get what you want from life. Um, And I think that that's important. Yeah. Especially, I mean, you know, especially people, uh, I mean, and this is saying this with no disrespect to professionals that are not in recovery. Mm -hmm. I think in some sort of way, they all are because they've been affected by alcoholism, even if they weren't the actual physical drinker. Um, I think sometimes those people that are closest to the alcoholic or the drug addict are hurt, are hurt the most, mm-hmm. more than even the person drinking. Um, so I, I think that if they can say, you know, I know what you feel like. I know what it feels like to be where you are right now. And I can tell you, you know, like hearing it from the horse's mouth, I can tell you there's a much easier way to live and a much funner way to live. And the best years of your life are probably ahead of you if you choose to, you know, a different path. Otherwise, there may not be many years ahead of you. Oh, absolutely. Second word that jumped out to me, um, or I should say third since you added laughter in there, is transparency. How has transparency played a big part in um, your life today? Well, just, I mean, it's, to me, you know, transparency, I think there's a lot of, again, sub words that I would add to transparency. Transparency is obviously people know what it means. I mean, you could add honesty, transparency, truth, um, you know, uh, okay, in today's circumstances, what is the federal government telling you versus what is the state government telling you versus what is your municipality telling you about what's going on in society? It's like, who do you believe? You hear three different stories about the same thing. So, but you do have a gut feeling about somebody at some level because of the transparency. And with transparency comes trust. With all that comes loyalty. With all that comes respect. And with all that comes, you don't have to remember a second story that like, oh, what did I tell this person? Because now I have to, you know, make sure I remember the story I told this person versus the story I told this person. If you're transparent, you're like, what you see is what you get. It's missing weight, right? It's like, what you see is what you get. And um, it's like, and a a lot of people don't like that. Um, Not meaning the people that are transparent, but meaning the some people around them, mm-hmm. um, they don't like it. And, and there's, in my opinion, there's a, 
you know, transparency, you know, you have to be very crafty with transparency as far as who you're addressing. If you're addressing a demographic of people in their 60s versus people in their 20s, your transparency is the same, but your delivery is different, you know, so the relatability. But, you know, there's going to be, I'm going to have, like, a lot more compassion when I sit and listen to somebody in their 60s. And I think, you know, we'll have compassion for somebody in their 20s, but it's it's different, if you know what I mean. So I think being transparent is, like, crucial. It's so crucial. And what makes it even more crucial and and more of, you know, like a, 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 a virtue, if you will, is all the BS in the world. When I was... Because people are... So tired of all the BS yeah. on some of the social media on in real life, like you know, and all this and all that, and look how many people like my picture or, or follow me or share this, or look how many people are going to dinner with me, and all. It's like who cares, right? It's it really it's like who cares? I really don't care. I've got my plate is full. I've got too much stuff. I have too many goals. You know, I know I'm not going to die soon. That I know because I have too many goals to accomplish. And I am far from perfect, so I have a lot of work to do, which that's why God's going to keep me here. Because he's like, you have a lot of lessons to learn, right? <laughs> so you're gonna, you might live into your hundreds, son. <laughs> when I was younger and my grandmother was in her 60s, she used to tell me that I would never be a good liar because I was too stupid to remember who I told what. <laughs> Hey, listen, so some 60-plus-year-olds just put it right out there. <laughs> she didn't hold back. Right? Right? <laughs> she was uh, right. I think, I think yeah, yeah. So, hey, listen, there's wisdom. There's wisdom. Absolutely. Wisdom um, in one of the interviews, you had talked about a difference for you between motivation and discipline. And I found it absolutely brilliant because it's also one of the things that we teach clinicians, um, that motivation is more of a state. It can come and go as opposed to a, a trait. And we know that individuals with substance use disorders are often looked at that they have no motivation. And that's not accurate. But you also talk about discipline. Can you talk about how you see those as, as being a part of one each other, but a little, still a little bit different? Absolutely. The, you know, and there's a, there's a few different ways that this is interpreted, even by me, depending on the context of what is, you know, the, whatever I'm talking about or whatever situation I'm in. So motivation for me is more emotional-based mm-hmm. than it is feeling-based. And uh, this is actually kind of funny now that I think that I said that. And here I think to myself, this guy on Sports Illustrated, we were supposed to be this badass talking about feelings. <laughs> I find that amusing. Um, well, I'm not okay, asking, so that, you know, 1989, Tony. No, no. <laughs> right, right. But I find it amusing now that I look back. <laughs> you know, who would have thought, right? Especially, you know, my my thing. But motivation is for me is more driven by emotion. So. You know, you can go to a weekend workshop or you can go to, uh, you know, uh, 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 a talk, whether it's a recovery talk or whether it's a self-development talk or or whether it's a business sales talk. And you can leave that place after three hours or three days of of intensive workshop and Mm -hmm. be all motivated 
you, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, because you're all fired up, and that's all emotion-based, right? Because mm-hmm. you're on a high, right? All these potentials I can do. And then the discipline of that is literally as fundamentally dummied down as you can get. you got to do it every day. you got to rinse and repeat, and you got to rinse and repeat the correct stuff, and you got to do it well. You can't rinse and repeat and just say, well, I'm doing it every day. If you're doing bad habits every day, that's not a good rinse and repeat. If you're doing good habits, you're going to keep growing or, or whatever you consider good habits mm-hmm. or whatever the goal is. So that's why uh, even, you know, I've been a, uh, I don't want to say a victim of this. I've been, um, you know, I, I, I see, I've seen myself do this, go to a place, get all fired up about something. And then the next day, do it. And then the second day, kind of do it. And then the third day, half do it. And then the fourth day, I'm back to half. You just described the uh, Red New Year's resolutions yeah. in, a, in a word. Yes, yeah. it's exactly that. It's like, I've always loved the phrase, and it's not, it's not really used very much, but I've always loved the, the phrase, that the place is here, the time is now. You know, when is a good time to get sober? If you're if you're in the midst of your addiction, never. Right? right. Write me a date on the calendar. When did you tell me when it works with your schedule? It doesn't. So the time is now, and the place is here. Whether you want to say it one way or the other, mm-hmm. and that makes a person. That's when you know you say, okay, are you serious? Because if you're serious about this, then let's start right now. If you're serious about it, yeah. if you're not sure, then, you know, you don't have to do, you don't have to do anything. You can stay. I mean, you know, usually people that will talk to the, you know, the, the, um, and I don't know how you would refer to the, whether you refer to the people that you guys accredit as coaches or as trainers or as, you know, whatever, a clinician. Um, all you know, of the above, all of the above, but just depending on what scope that they're working mm-hmm. in, it's, it's kind of like, you know, they're there to give the information and they're there to say, Hey, look, I, you're talking to me, not because you're on a winning streak, because if you're on a winning streak, you don't need to talk to me. There's a reason you're talking to me. However, whatever that circumstance was brought up, however it came about whether it was by law or whether it was by choice or whether it was by intervention or whether it was by, you know, employer, it doesn't matter how, but there's a reason why you're sitting in front of that clinician coach, whatever it's. And I can guarantee you it's not because you're kicking butt, you know, you're getting your butt kicked. And, and I remember being in treatment and we had a, a small group session of like, nine of us with a counselor and it was my first group session um, after getting out of detox in the same place mm-hmm. in detox you, you can't participate in anything but you know except you know you eat and that's it you can't participate in, <laughs> except in anything pray else for you're, right right <laughs> you exactly. can participate in that <laughs> exactly so I remember this lady saying something and it was like a bad hit me across my face and she wasn't singling me out she was talking to the whole group and, and it was a small, intimate, you know, nine people and her. And she said, 
before I start with this, and, and, you know, four or five of the nine were like, it was our first time to meet this way. She said, I just want you all to know that your, your own personal best thinking got you to this room in Detroit in this treatment center. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, oh, my God, she's right. The empire that I was building in my head and the greatness that I was going to achieve and all of these things and grandiose things that I was going to do, those plans got my butt in a chair in a treatment center. And I thought to myself, my God, maybe I should listen for a change. And it's amazing how the simple things strike, you know, strike you at the heart uh, because they're the easiest to understand and see. And that it's very simple. You're thinking got you here yeah oh. and it's i mean like how do you gray area that there's <laughs> no gray area there. <laughs> it's, just like, it's like hey i didn't i listened to this guy's book and um well i read this person's book and i and i took the wrong path and i started you know my life when i can go no you still made a decision to take right. that path at the end of the day you own your stuff whether it's good or bad and um and, and and when it's good, you need to acknowledge it to yourself to say, hey, not boast about it, but just admit to yourself, you know what, I am changing. I'm not the person I used to be. I'm not, you know, and I'm trying to improve. And I, I've changed. And, and as the, you know, sobriety has gotten longer as far as mm-hmm. a, a linear timeline, the road has gotten narrower for me on do's and don'ts. And I think it's very difficult for individuals, especially in early recovery, to give themselves credit for something that they've done well, because you're getting so many negative messages and do a pretty good job of beating yourself up as well. But being able to look and say, yes, I did this. Yes, I'm able to do this is important. Yes, it's very important. And, 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 and at that point in their life, and they could be 55 years old and just stop drinking, gone through treatment, and find themselves in a meeting or something, or being in treatment, it, it, they could be 21 or 55, and the facts, and they could be beating themselves up without opening their mouth in their head, mm-hmm. but the fact that they took the step to get to that treatment center, or to talk to a clinician, or a coach, or to talk to an outpatient, or to go to a meeting, they're taking an action because they want change. From the position of a a clinician, the most important thing that we can do, you know, that the folks that I train and and certify can do is well, make that a welcoming environment. You know, I don't want to be here, but you're here. And I appreciate that. Yes. Maybe the first time somebody's heard, you know, gotten any appreciation for, for something. Exactly. So another thing that you mentioned Creativity was a word that came up. Now, certainly creativity plays a part in your job as a photographer, but how has creativity helped your recovery? Well, it's, it's, um, I, I've been able to, maybe I should say, I, I, I thought or think I am able to communicate very well verbally on how I feel. Now, I know I have had relationships for example, with my daughters, where I would check myself, like do my inventory and be like, I was, my motivation was spot on. It's whatever, it's like what's going to be the best for them. 
what was coming out of my mouth was demand and expectation. Mm-hmm. And it, it was it sounded a lot different to them than what I was feeling in my heart. So, you know, it, it, it's like... So obviously, verbally, I was not communicating that well, and that was in sobriety. So, and that's hurt. That, that mm-hmm. those relationships, like really bad, it's hurt. So, in that sense, you know, it made me take a step back, maybe talk to some people about it, and maybe change on how I approach certain things, what to say, and then especially, you know, really, really, really learn how to listen instead of constantly interrupting because you have all the answers. It's that attitude of, I'm your dad, I'm older than you, I know better, I've had more experience, I have this, you know, it's like, it's like, you know, leave that at the door, right? Mm -hmm. They're human, they're their own individual, you know, listen to them. And, you know, and, 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 you know, and and hear them out, hear their ideas. Um, So in that way, I've learned to creatively you know, in certain relationships, be able to tone it down. Mm-hmm. In other stuff, whether it's, you know, friends with friends or whatever, or I, you know, I mean, creativity and, and, and you know, I mean, my photography is not just like uh, it starts at X hour and ends at X hour. It's kind of like constant, right? It's mm-hmm. it's like I, the word retirement has, doesn't enter my mind. Mm-hmm. The only time the word retirement enters my mind is if I read it on something from the NFL that talks about your retirement pension or this or mm-hmm. that. And I'm like, okay, because I don't want to retire from, uh, I want to do what I love till the day I die. And, um, and the fact that I'm in, you know, uh, my medium is, a, is being a photographer and kind of being able to get creative that way, a lot of my work, all of my work, I would say, that I love, like the certain ones that I love and that I post, obviously, if I post it online, it, I obviously love it. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of, like, I see a story for a time period, and that time period could have been a two-hour time period in my life, but I see that in that picture, and that picture might be of something that is totally not related to what the context of what that picture is supposed to be, but it does send the message that that person wanted as a portrait or as a business, um, you know, picture to use, that it all comes from some point in my life and that's why there's a lot of dark pictures. Like I like light dramatic pictures with one light and I like to shape light and I like to make things moody, strong, intense. And it's like a lot, there was a lot of dark days mm-hmm. in, in my drinking and drugging. Mm-hmm. There were dark days in my sobriety. Absolutely. You know? That all being said, there was a lot of light days too. So I think, I think, you know, channeling your darkness and using it as a virtue instead of a vice is a good thing. I think that, you know, people talk about their dark side and, you know, it's not to be interpreted as the evil side. It's just to be like there's just things that you do that you don't want to put on the front page of the New York Times. Right. Right. So it's like what motivates you or whatever, or what's your own action that you take. But a lot of that darkness, in my opinion, and this is really my opinion, drives you, if you could channel it correctly, drives you day-to-day with your discipline. Mm 
Mm-hmm. Because it's it's and it's not like uh, I don't want to. I don't have that attitude of I'll show them. Or if somebody says you can't do that. I'm not about. Well, yeah, watch me. I used to be that. Yeah. But now it's like they can say it, and I can be like, you know, okay, and just like you should even give them a reaction, which mm-hmm. makes them even crazier because they want a reaction. Mm-hmm. And but I know what I want, and I know what needs to be done to get what I want. And if I want it bad enough, I can do it. Actually, anybody can. Right. If somebody wants something bad enough, you can do it. It's just the fact that they don't believe, they don't give themselves permission to do it. They come up with all these excuses. They come up with, it's too much of a long shot. And it's like, yeah, I don't want to do something that's not a long shot. Because everybody else does it. Everybody else stays in that comfort right. zone. I want to get outside that comfort zone and take a risk. Right. You know? And, and, I've, and I've been able to do that half in the bag and become, you know, basically taking that step off the cliff and fell flat on my face. And I've also been able to do that in sobriety and things have happened that I just would have been like, I just cannot believe that this happened. And I'm pinching myself going, is this like real? That this is like this incredible, you know? And it's, 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 you know, taking that chance. But a lot of my, a lot of me, you know, and I think any photographer would say this, or any artist would say this, or musician, is a lot of my life experience is very evident in my images. And I thought it was interesting to ask about those, that group of words that, that I had seen you repeating in other interviews, because I, you just put it all together for me. They all play together with each other, you know, in the same sandbox, gratitude and humor and transparency and discipline and creativity. They all become part of a larger whole. Um, and I think that's, so they're, they really do go together. They're not separate words. Um, yeah, they they like almost complement each other. Absolutely. You know, and then, and they're, they're very synergistic together. That's the good word. Synergistic is probably the word I was looking for. Just don't ask me to spell it. Yeah, I, well, I couldn't even grasp it at the time, so <laughs> we'll call that even. <laughs> in 2008, the interview with Armin Kittayan, who I think is a fabulous interviewer, Armin Kittayan, yes, you admitted for the first time that you used steroids while playing at Michigan State after almost 20 years after you left. What about that made it the right time for you? Um, well, uh, I mean, to be transparent, um, that was, that interview was done like a month before I released my book about my bio, Mm -hmm. like my biography. Um, I wanted to release, I wanted to write that book and release it within 24 months of retiring from Indianapolis to share my experience right? so people can see that, Hey, you know what? Yeah, he did screw up. He owned up, and then he changed it. And look what, like, I mean, good things happen, and and when you do the right thing. And the two publishers I went to, which would be considered definitely tier one publishers, like you would know, like everybody mm-hmm. would know their name, right? Right. And I won't mention any. Mm-hmm. Like, their initials are Penguin and Simon Schuster, <laughs> um, but I won't mention any names. Yeah, I'm glad you did. Um, Right. So it's kind of like, um, if you're not going to throw people under the bus, 
in your story, yeah. it's not going to sell as many books. And I said, yeah, that makes total sense. I get it because um, I, I see that all the time. And I said, but that's not what the book's about. It's not about throwing people under the bus. It's about my mistakes, not somebody else's. Right. And it's about my part in it and my side of the street, not their side of the street and not their part in it. Their part in it is their part. It's their business. Right. It's how I did and react and what I did or what I provoked is, and, and, and to kind of, I felt that I had a, a responsibility to explain um, and, and let people understand the, you know, kind of really what happened because everybody was so fixated that it was all about the steroids. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't, it was about, it was, and, and when I was in the midst of the addiction in Green Bay, it was great. I was like, well, they're all concentrating on, well, the reason he's not forming a cause because of, he's not taking steroids anymore. Where in fact, when you're sticking a needle in your arm and taking 50 or 60 painkillers a day and drinking, it takes the focus off of that because they're not looking for that. Yeah, if there's so, something that you weren't doing at that time either, they're they're focused on something exactly. that's not a part of your life anymore. Exactly. So, um, so they so they said, well, unless you throw people under the bus, name names from college, you know, and really it was college because that's where I had my my steroid use. Um, you know, we're not gonna be interested. And I said, okay, that's fine. I'll just move on. And and um, and then I got kind of, um, believe it or not, bitter about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was like, okay, uh, maybe now it's just not the right timing, um, and maybe it never will be. But you know, another you know seven, eight years, nine years went by, and I felt inspired again to write it. And I was like. Well, I'm not going to go to a tier one. I'm just going to either, at that point, especially, you know, 11, 12 years ago now, it's not nearly as big as it is now. You can still publish. Right. But the biggest thing that the publisher, the big publishing houses bring you, like the biggest thing is the marketing budget. Mm-hmm. They, they get you out there all over the place. And then they, you know, there's certain things you do to get on a bestseller list. You don't get on a bestseller list because, you know, by chance. I mean, there are people that do, and those are the like the phenomenal ones, like Simon Sinek, like certain, you know, like certain people that are just phenomenal. But then you read somebody's book, and it says, you know, and you and you and you think this is a like one of the bestsellers, yeah. and I mean, it's a good book, but mm-hmm. it's like this is a bestseller. No, there's a way to do it, and they tell you how to do it. Which is like so funny to me because it's so like like non-transparent, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And um, you know, it's like during these next ten days are crucial that people buy books, just so you know. <laughs> yeah, and what <laughs> shows you go on and things make a difference. Right. You know, the thing that yeah. stuck out to me most about that interview, and I remember it at the time, and then I just rewatched it the other day, was. Um, the fact that you, you, when asked, you wouldn't throw anyone under the bus. You just said, I don't want to answer that question. And then you talked about um, Jose Canseco, and we'll just leave it at that, <laughs> you know, yeah, about doing yeah, that. Yeah. It just didn't, didn't, uh, that wasn't where you're at and what you wanted to be. Uh, and I was, I was, you know, that was an impressive thing to me. Also, the fact that you could, you could not answer that question with that Armin Kate and blank stare 
burning right through you with no emotion right. on his face. I mean, he's brilliant at how he does right. that. Right. Um, right. Right. So, when you were he's playing fun. football, I mean, yeah, he's a, he, I really enjoy watching. Yeah. And, he's, all, he's a great human being, like off camera. He's a guy that's just an incredible person. Yeah. You know, when you were playing football, your workouts were legendary in their intensity, absolutely legendary. What do you do today to take care of yourself physically? And have you been able to transfer some of that intensity and I dare say discipline over to those activities today? Well, um, I would say I hurt my back pretty bad three years ago Mm -hmm. to the point of, um, where it was like hard, there were days where it was hard to walk and, and, the diagnosis was your back is worn out. It's like gone. Mm-hmm. It's like your lower back, right? And they're like, mm-hmm. you, you have severe advanced disc degeneration. And they're like, it's a common thing, but it's more, it's more common in people that are a little bit older than you, maybe 20 years older or whatever. Although there are people that get it in their late twenties, just because they could be a girl that's a ballet dancer or a, some kind of a dancer her whole life or somebody, you know, that, Day after day, been grinding on a job and a assembly line, or whatever the case may be. You know, mine happened to be practice and weight room and all that. Mm-hmm. So they're like, "There's really nothing to do right now. Like, there's nothing to fix. Like, there's nothing there to fix. Right? It's just worn out." Um, they said, "If you're getting, you know, you know, if your legs start to go numb, well, then we know a nerve is being pinched between discs. There's something we can do about that." So up until that point three years ago i was in the gym six or seven days a week um my the amount of weight i was moving was obviously not nearly as much as i was you know in my younger years Mm -hmm. but the intensity of the workouts they weren't as intense as they were when i was younger but they were i would say 75 percent 80 percent there of intensity Mm -hmm. because you can use lightweight go extremely strict with form and and then find out what you're made of internally. And because the workout doesn't really, really start, or the set really doesn't start until you're burning so bad, whether it's your legs or your arms or your shoulders, whatever, until you get to that point. That's when the real work starts. Mm-hmm. That's when the growth starts. Right. It's when you're at that burn. And that's when you find out what, you know, and I don't want to say pain tolerance because, I mean, it is physically painful, but your the mind is so powerful. And, you know, I, I mean, I would trick myself into situations uh, to keep going. And, and, you know, whether, you know, it'd be me telling my mind, uh, you know, that my, you know, my family's life is on the line if I don't get these next 14 reps. Mm-hmm. And I wouldn't say that out verbally. I would be thinking that thought. And it's interesting how the mind channels that and you can do those reps when literally five seconds before that, you were like ready to just drop mm-hmm. the weight and be like, I'm done. So, that, you know, so the reason I, I ask is I want people to hear that that intensity in, in taking care of yourself can still go on, um, yeah. you know, using your powers for good, I, I would say, yeah. you know, you're yeah. still taking care of yourself. Um, yes. And I do, and, and that, all those, you know, things were, like a lot of those things, believe it or not, I mean, they were learned on the football field 
especially in college. Mm-hmm. Um, from my head coach to my position coach to, you know, even Nick Saban, who recruited me. And it's like, these guys, like, the set of coaches that they had were all about fundamental. Right. And they were all about keep it simple. They were all about dummy it down for these guys because they're dumb. Right? And they, they we would all laugh, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but it really is about fundamental because in anything, if stuff's not working, it doesn't matter what it is in your life, it, it, even things that are as probably one of the most complex things in the world, a relationship. If things aren't working in a relationship, let's dummy it down to the fundamentals. Mm-hmm. Do you love me? And do I love you? Let's start there. Because if one of us don't, well, there's no really reason to talk about anything else. Exactly. You're right. Right? Mm-hmm. And that's dummying it down the fundamentals. And then if both people say yes, let's just say it's like a, uh, like a boyfriend, girlfriend, or husband, wife thing. Um, because you're, you know, your love for a daughter or your love for a son different than obviously your, yeah. your love for a partner. So if it's your wife or your girlfriend or, or vice versa or whatever, then, you know, you fundamentally would ask the next question, you know, what do you want? Uh, you know, like, I, and I'm just throwing this out. I, I mean, I don't have none of this script. It's all I've lived. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, okay, what do you want out of this? And, and then I'll express what I want out of this relationship. Well, what do you expect out of this relationship? And I can tell you what I expect out of it. And it's really dumbing it down, keeping it simple, back to fundamental. You know, and and like, you know, and, and the football example I'll give you is, and this went throughout college all the way through my last game of playing. If we ever got blown out by a team, like 31 to three or just got crushed. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter at what level you knew if you were smart, if you had half a brain, you knew that next week at practice, it's going to be blocking and tackling. That's what you're going to practice. Yep. It's going to be football one-on-one because when you look at the film, broken tackles, missed blocks, all the fundamentals were gone and they take it back to the fundamentals. And it makes so much sense. If you ever have read or listened to or seen John Wooden's work, the great basketball coach from UCLA, mm-hmm. first day of practice, I mean, these guys are like national champions. I mean, how many years in a row? Like they have, they still hold the record, I think, for how many years consecutively in a row. The first day of practice, he would teach them how to tie their basketball shoes. And you're talking about the team that is the best team in the country. Right. And they'd all be like, what the heck? I mean, it's about, look, if, if it doesn't start with the fundamentals of the game, and he really, I mean, you talk about dumbing it down. That's dumbing it down. Right. I mean, that's like even dumbing it down more than I would dummy it down. <laughs> but it's like, when I read that, I was jealous that I didn't think of it. For Coach Wooden, it worked. Right. And he's an icon. I mean, he's iconic. Yeah. And he's like, how do you not look up to somebody like that? And he was humble. You know, as a you big know? sports and, fan, and, it, I I see. Uh, I'll text with my buddies on Saturday and Sunday watching football, saying, "Why does every defensive back think they're Ronnie Lott and want to blow up the runner <laughs> instead of just right. you know you see a guy and they're working hard who's rapping and waiting for someone else to help them 
you right. know, they do better. Yeah. The team yeah. with the best fundamentals almost always wins. The relationships sure. that are that understand the fundamentals are the ones that win. Because if you can't agree on the most basic thing, do we love each other? Well, then there's no right. need for any other question. There's no reason. <laughs> yeah. it, it's, it's exactly. It, it's like you're knocking out and you're you're saving a lot of time for that person and yourself. And and that can go with employer-employee relationships. Exactly. In all you know? relationships. In in any relationship, it can go. And and it's like, okay, what? Let's dummy it down to the fundamentals. Why are you? Why did I hire you? Like, why did you come to? You know the 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 Connecticut certification board. Tell me why you came here. Oh, was the money? So so I do it right, right, right. Because so working for a non nonprofit, right? yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, because I, I they definitely want to be guaranteed a job. They'll always have a demand. Yeah, right. Correct. Um, but but it's like, and obviously there's obviously they love. I would imagine that people do what and take the courses that you guys teach have a huge passion for helping people and have somehow been affected in their life through traumatic experiences of, you know, stuff that is, you know, chemically related or traumatic yeah. or, you know, anything from PTSD. I don't know. I don't know the whole scope of the, the project or the, or the certifications, mm-hmm. but it's like, you know, like there, there's something inside that person that wants to give back. Right. And we want to hone the skills, but you cannot yes. take somebody who doesn't want to be helpful or doesn't want to help. You can't put that into somebody no. skills. You can teach, no. but that drive, you can't. Right. Um, exactly. speak, speaking of relationships, I want to bring up a name from your football career that I'd like you to talk about just for a brief second, your old coach, Lindy Infante. For those that don't know, Lindy Infante was the head coach in green Bay when Tony was cut and he was the head coach in Indianapolis that signed him a few years later. So what can you tell me about your relationship with the coach? You know, Lindy was, Lindy, like a lot of people didn't know Lindy, um, like in the, like from a fan perspective. Um, He's not like a Bill Parcells. He's not like a Bill Belichick. Like as far as, as far as a known name, even when he was coaching, it's like he was, he was a phenomenal offensive coordinator under, you know, certain Marty Schottenheimer mm-hmm. in Cleveland, you know, and that's when he got the opportunity to take the head job at Green Bay. So Lindy was really uh, a, an incredible guy. Um, he, he was, I mean, he was obviously, I would say, a better coordinator, offensive coordinator mm-hmm. than a head football coach. And I only say that because I love the man and, and you know, and he, he just passed away in the last year or two, year and a half, I think. Um, I, I mean, I love the man. He, he, he's like, he was like, he treated his players like they were his kids, like they were his own. And, but the record shows, you know, like the actual factual records, if you look at his record as a head coach versus record as an offensive coordinator, mm-hmm. it's like, it's like night and day. He's like, he's had way more success as an offensive coordinator, but obviously the ultimate job as a coach, I would be to reach the level of becoming a head coach. Correct. I would think for most people. Yeah. Um, but you know, and that's not in saying that it's not a knock on him. It's just saying that, you know, he was better at being an offensive coordinator because when he was head coach, 
he was also offensive coordinator calling the plays. So now he's got double duty, right, which is a whole bunch more on your plate. And that may have hindered him just becoming and taking control of just that one position. I don't know. But as far as a human being, uh, just a phenomenal man. Um, and, you know, he wasn't the, I mean, I, I can't say he was the only reason I got a second chance because there were, I mean, he has to answer to a general manager and an mm-hmm. owner. So, you know, but he was definitely a huge catalyst. And he was so happy. He was more happy to see me healthy in Indianapolis than he was that I came back and signed with Indianapolis. Like, he was, like, so happy that I had turned it around because he didn't know. Like, he literally didn't know. I mean, and, and a lot of people don't know, you know, how, how bad off some people are right. as far as in their addiction because, you know, we can hide it pretty well mm-hmm. up to a certain point. And then when it gets to a certain point, we can't hide it anymore. It's like a, it's a, the analogy that I've heard, which I think is one of the best, is, is the pregnant lady. Once a lady's pregnant, she's pregnant. She's no more pregnant at nine months than she is at conception. She's pregnant. But the only thing is it shows more at nine right. months. There's no degrees of pregnancy. There's <laughs> just, right. can you see it or exactly. not? Exactly. Exactly. You're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. So right. you're either a drunk or you're not, or, or an addict or you're not. So it just starts to show more as you, it reveals itself to people as because you care less. Yeah, and I asked that and, because um, I wondered about Lindy the man, not a, you know, um, yeah. you know, he said it and how you related to him because he saw you at your worst and then he saw yeah. you reclaim yourself. Um, and yeah. another name you mentioned is Marty Schottenheimer. What an underrated football coach Marty Schottenheimer is. Yeah, he was I mean, a, look at his he, record. Yeah, he got, <laughs> he got the short end of the stick in Cleveland and the real short end of the stick in Washington. Uh-huh. Yeah, and then even look what he did in Kansas City. Yeah, just and then, one of and my then favorites. He, and then he did well in, I believe, in San Diego. And they got rid of him. Yeah, just. And he was doing well. I think he was doing, like, I think he had really turned that program around. And, um, you know, there's a story with me and Marty, Marty, Marty Schottenheimer that is, I mean, it's funny now. It was so funny back then, but it's basically when they were, him and the GM had taken me out to dinner like a month before the draft mm-hmm. and just, you know, just to see what kind of a person I was. And um, let's just say I left the table and told and said some unkind words mm-hmm. because they, they felt um, that I was doing steroids, which was exactly 100% correct. And well, if it wasn't true, so you what, wouldn't have gotten mad. <laughs> right. Exactly. Right. It's like, so then I obviously proved to them I was by storming off <laughs> and being like, don't worry. You know, it's like I was so out of control. And, uh, but, it's, you know, I'd seen him years later um, and, and talked to him about it and stuff. And, and you know, anybody I've talked to that I've kind of like crossed paths with unexpectedly that had known me from before, that was either a coach or especially a coach or somebody in a higher position executive or something, they were all like, you know what? It doesn't matter anymore. The thing, the most important thing is that you did something about it and you're good today. And, um, and, and, you know, that tells me a lot about people and their, the, the, you know, the spirit of humanity and, and, you know, the compassion that people have. 
with with all of your experiences and with 25 years under your belt in recovery and all that you've been through, you've you know amassed a lot of wisdom. What advice would you give from that wisdom to 18-year-old Tony? Well, I know the 18-year-old Tony wouldn't listen. That was my next question, uh, so you answered it perfectly. No, he wouldn't (laughs) listen, no. There was no telling because that Tony had the answer for himself, and he had the answer for you. (laughs) That's that's how much, that's how much, uh, like, it was, you know, it was an out-of-control narcissistic. Uh, egotistical, and I don't know what other word <laughs> to use um, that I can pronounce. Uh, it, it, it was like, first of all, he wouldn't have listened, you know, but then there's that kind of argument of saying, well, at least you're planting the seed that, you know, maybe somewhere down the line that person can reflect back after they've been shared that by a bunch of other different people, the same thing, you know. But I would, there's no way I would have listened. Um, there's no way. And I, I was asked that question on the E60 mm-hmm. documentary that was done last Easter. Um, and that was the very last question asked by Jeremy Schaap. And, and the whole thing ends on me saying, um, because he says, what would you say to that guy on the cover of Stars Illustrated? Yeah. And and I said I, I said and I, I'm saying it's verbatim for but it was like you're gonna have a lot of hard you're gonna have a lot of lessons to learn and you're gonna learn them the hard way and and that and that's obviously hindsight is fantastic because that's exactly what yeah, happened correct that's, that's exactly what happened you know there was no telling like I've got all the answers and that's you want to talk about fundamentals? When someone says, I've got all the answers, you're like, well, I guess the conversation's over. Yeah, <laughs> it, talking. You know, <laughs> it's hard to listen, um, you know, when when you are in a position where nobody's tell, told you that before. You've, in your head, have always been right. You know, failure yeah. does a and, lot to teach some of the things, and that's something that I got yeah. from a conversation, you know, with Ryan Leaf saying, I never failed in my life until I got to the biggest stage and then it just went kaboom and everybody right. saw it. Um, right. So the wisdom is, is it probably is, the most is, important thing. It, it, it's uh, yeah. I mean, you know, everybody fails. It's just the level of failure. Plus yeah. not everybody sees all the failures. Correct. Um, because they'll focus on either the epic failures or but they'll mostly focus on, you know, the success. Nobody wants to talk about how much this person does for the community, but they'll put them on the front page for a DUI. Right. You know what I'm saying? So it's like, and I'm not saying that a DUI is okay. I'm just saying that they want controversy. Yeah, it, and that's what sells. Yeah, it sells more newspapers or, or subscribers to internet, you know, news feeds or, or whatever the case may be. Yeah, you, you don't see a lot of... of you know, positives in the newspaper about yeah. things you want to see people that are known, yeah. you know, the, the yeah. public seems to want to see them fail. And, and that's sad. Are you ready for the most important sad. question that I have? This one, I got a lot riding on this question. Okay. My humility. Uh, ready? Let's hear it. In your opinion. <laughs> and we know there's no right or wrong answer to this. In your opinion, okay. who is the greatest offensive lineman in the history of the game? 
and I'm answering this as a 53-year-old, not an 18-year-old, right? Correct. <laughs> you can't say Tony Mandarich. Well, you could. <laughs> At 18, I would have. <laughs> well, everybody else was saying it about you. Why wouldn't you believe it? Right. right. Um, you know, uh, there's been so many great ones. Um, and there are great ones that are playing now. Um, so part of this has to be, part of this consideration has to be a, a generational thing too, because a lot of the player, people, like some of the one or two of the people I mentioned, a lot of people may not know those names. But yeah. And you and I and are from the same so generation, and so is the individual that I have this argument with. So right. <laughs> we can keep like it generational. Opinion, like one of the biggest influences, like my influencers, was John Hanna from the Patriots. Oh, John um, Hanna. The Patriots were, yeah, I mean, the guy was just like, I mean, you talk about dominating people. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, it was incredible. You know, but that being said, the Steelers had great offensive linemen. Um, you know, Cincinnati with Anthony Munoz yep. was great. You talk about somebody nasty, Conrad Dobler, even before, you know, like kind of my time. Oh, that, was, that used to bite people in the pile. Was, right. And it's like, it's like, it's like, I hate him, but I want him on my team. Right. <laughs> right. I don't want to play against him. You know, he was a great offensive lineman in a different way because he could change the whole mood and throw the defense off with getting them short tempered and stuff. But as far as like the whole package uh, and just like everything, because there's a lot of moving parts going on when you're playing. Mm-hmm. I mean, to me, it, it would be John, you know, John Hanna. I mean, the guy was just, he was just, he was a man's man, if you will, like in the offensive alignment. And I agree with you because I'm a Ben Patriots fan since those days. Um, and Hannah played on some horrible teams, and he was the oh, only yeah. thing I had to look forward to. <laughs> On Sunday. Yeah, wait, 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 wait. the only thing I look forward to is watching it because yeah, the Sunday. Patriots were terrible it's not a good team. and did it on you know maybe the worst artificial turf <laughs> ever yeah. in yeah. the NFL. Yeah, yeah. So Tony, I really appreciate your time today and and having a talk with you, and um, you know maybe we'll do it again. Thanks for coming on yeah. today, and uh, yeah. I'll stay in touch. And uh, uh, it's good to talk to you and get to know you a little bit. Uh, yeah. So thank you. It's been my pleasure. I really appreciate you know you having me on, and 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 hopefully somebody will you know listen to it and get a better understanding of you know different points of view of different people in different positions. You know, so well, hopefully, it, I mean, it's helped me and um, doing this, and 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 hopefully it'll help somebody. I'm sure it will, Tony. Thanks a lot. All right, my friend. That's going to do it for this episode of Scope of Practice. I'd like to thank Tony again for joining us and for all of the work that he does in helping others, speaking to people and and talking about recovery. Uh, And we here at the Connecticut Certification Board appreciate everyone who's listening. Don't forget to follow us on Podbean. Until next time, everybody.